So Luke 22, verse 31. Trusting you are there in God's word, let us hear the word of God. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. And he, that is Peter, said unto him, Lord, I am ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. And he said, I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day before that thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. Amen. May God bless his word to us. Let us pray for the preaching. O gracious God, our Father, we have heard Christ in the word. And now we pray that we would hear Christ in the preaching. That it would be Christ and not the minister that would be heard in the pulpit. That it would be Christ and the voice of Christ calling out to us. Calling out to us in the preaching of the word to recognize what great things the Lord is doing how he is sustaining us as pilgrims on the way. And so we pray, Father, that the word of God would have its effect as it is preached, that the congregation here would be strengthened in faith, that those without faith would turn to the Lord for it, and that we may be blessed in him. And so, Father, we pray now that unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, the grace would be given, that I should preach among your congregation the unsearchable riches of Christ, And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, tonight we'll spend some time considering the intercessory work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ's work as our great high priest did not conclude at the cross. Though, of course, what was concluded at the cross and in the resurrection of Christ was the complete payment of all of our sins and the vindication of our Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection for our salvation, but Christ continues on as a priest. He did not give up his office at the cross and at the resurrection. At the ascension, he continues his work, even for us now. Even now, even this very hour, he continues his office, not as a sacrifice, but as an intercessor for us at God's right hand. He continues to pray for us, brethren. We are ever on his heart, we are ever on his mind, and he prays for us. He applies his blood to us in time to forgive us of our sins. He prays that our faith is upheld. The truth is this, we persevere because he prays. We persevere because he prays for us. And we really ought to, and this is so neglected by us, we ought to study the intercessory work of Jesus Christ. We really should. Too too many of us uh, ignore it and neglect it. I'm not sure if you have done it, if you've studied the prayers of Christ, most especially, and we'll consider this maybe next Lord's Day, John 17, his great high priestly prayer, by which you understand the heart of the Lord to take us before God. If you do these things, you would have great assurance wrought in your soul for your salvation. Christ prays for me. There would be great comfort and rest that would come even in the hardest of trials. Christ prays for me. A greater boldness and a greater zeal for the Lord to obey him and to be a witness for him. Because in these things, Christ prays for me. 
so that you could say, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him because Christ is praying all the while. You know, there's a wonderful quote by Robert Murray McShane, but we often unmoor it from its context. And I thought I would give you the fuller context of the quote that we often see a part of. Because Robert Murray McShane saw his own need and his own life for personal reformation. And he said, I ought to study Christ as an intercessor. This is his own personal resolution. I ought to study Christ as an intercessor. He prayed most for Peter, who was to be most tempted. You see this, he prays most for his people who are most tempted. And then he continues on. I am on his breastplate, meaning like the old high priests. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million of enemies. Yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. This is a marvelous thought. A marvelous thought, isn't it? That you are not left to your own, even in prayer. That the Lord is praying for you. The Lord is strengthening you. The Lord is thinking of you. The Lord is interceding for you, child of God. Constantly, totally, when you're asleep, he who keeps Israel doesn't slumber. And he is not sleeping while you are. And so in view of this sentiment of Robert Murray McShane, we consider Christ interceding for our faith. In that, we have to also understand why is faith a target? Why is faith a target of the evil one? And why is it that Christ prays this way for Peter and you ought to take heart even as it is difficult for you? Why does he pray for Peter? Not that thy faith will not be tested, but rather that thy faith not faileth not. See, there's a distinction there, isn't it? He never prayed. I do not, I'm praying that your faith will not be tested. No, no, no. But rather when it is tested, it will not fail. And that is going to be important for you and me. So our theme is Christ's prayer for our faith. Christ's prayer for our faith. And we'll consider that theme under three heads. First is Peter's peril. Second is Christ's petition. And third is God's purpose. So first, Peter's peril. Now, for context, I assume many of us in a congregation like this understand uh, the context here of this text. But just for reference, this is after the first Lord's Supper. And this occurred before Peter's greatest trial of faith. Before Peter's greatest trial of faith. Christ warned Peter that his faith would be sorely tried by the devil. Uh, this warning came before Peter would deny Jesus three times, as you well know. Christ warned Peter that he would be tried and tested. Simon, Simon, behold... Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. So this is the peril that Peter is in. Satan demands to sift Peter as wheat. Now, let's break up this address. We don't want to go too fast. Uh, this address to Peter to understand the danger he was in. First children, I, I hope you recognize how uh, the Lord Jesus Christ addresses Peter. He addresses him as Simon, Simon, Simon. Now, you remember this, and this is actually significant, children. You remember Simon was Peter's name, wasn't it, before he was renamed by the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, before Christ named him Peter. Now, that was in Matthew 16, and let's remember the context, Matthew 16, 15 through 18. He saith unto them, the disciples, but whom say ye that I am? Now, that's interesting, right? He's asking for a confession of faith. And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee, here it is, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You notice how it is after his confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that Christ named Simon Petros, or Peter, that is the rock, a word that signifies strength. Now, first of all, he is named this when he confesses Christ, and there's something here then in the temptation of Peter to walk away from that confession in the denial of Christ that the Lord is alluding to, of course, that Simon, Simon, your, your name before this public confession of faith. But um, I want you to consider a couple of other reasons why Christ reverts to calling Peter Simon. In Hebrew, the word uh, is uh, Simon is Simeon, and the meaning is the one who hears, the one who hears. And so, first of all, he's trying to get Peter's attention. You must not neglect to hear the word of God. Simon, Simon, be the one who hears right now. Be not the rock, be the one who hears. Peter is not to outgrow his need to hear the words of Christ. Hear me, beloved. You know, in this, Christ speaks to us all. No matter how far you grow in grace, no matter if you think you're a Peter, right, a, a, a rock of strength, you really never outgrow hearing the word of God. Never. Ministers, elders, all of us, we never outgrow. Uh, often, um, the word has a, you think about this here, what is this to, to Peter? It's a warning, isn't it? It's a warning. And think about how many times we read the word of God and we just gloss over a warning given to us. That's what Peter's going to do, obviously. He's going to gloss over this warning. But Christ says, Peter, thou must not outgrow thy need to hear my words. Hear me now, lest you fall into a grievous sin. That's something for all of us. No matter how far you've gone in the Christian life, there are warnings for us all throughout the word. Another reason, and perhaps you could consider this the third reason, is Christ desired to show Peter his vulnerability. Now, Peter, don't misunderstand. You're not a rock in yourself. Never start to think that, that you are the rock impenetrable. You know, Peter is not to rest secure in his own strength. He must take heed lest he fall. Peter needed Christ if he was going to withstand Satan's assaults. You know, the spokesman of the apostle cannot stand without Christ. Thou art now Simon. If he's Petros, it's only because he has set his faith on the rock, Christ himself. Fourth, his denial of Jesus, which I touched on maybe in the first point, would go against his confession that Christ is the Son of God. Ever since Peter's confession of Jesus Christ, you can think of this. Jesus likely called him Peter. Right, Peter, Peter. But now in the face of a great sifting which was about to come on him, a danger to die, the Lord, uh, the Lord is saying, remember, thou art still Simon. It almost would be jarring for the man to come back to that name, Simon. Um, he certainly would have gotten the man's attention, or at least his intention is to get his attention. And consider how emphatic Christ is in the address. Simon, Simon, repeats it twice. There's urgency there to grab his attention. This is important for you to listen to. And yet it's also an intimate and familiar address from the Lord, right? Simon, Simon, it's that familial name 
Urgency met with intimacy. And so the Lord is seeking Peter's utmost attention in this simple address, which you find with the word conjoined to it, behold. In other words, this is something important. You must pay attention to this, Simon. And what is it that he has to pay attention to? Simon, thou art in Satan's crosshairs. You're in the crosshairs of the devil. And you need to listen to this. See, Christ told Peter that Satan hath desired to have you. Now, it's important to understand what Christ means here by the word desire. Uh, Any confusion about this is erased when you understand that the Greek word under it means, and this is rather fascinating, demand. He has demanded you. In other words, there are two prayers here. Satan is praying to God that he would have Peter, and Christ is praying that Peter's faith would be upheld. Now, we've been in the book of Job, so you understand what Satan has done, isn't it? It's the same pattern, isn't it? He demanded to sift Peter as wheat as he had desired to do with Job long before. It's the same idea. You remember how Satan tried to sift Job to break the man's faith in God, right? This is faith under assault again. What was his thesis, children? If you afflict Job, you take his blessings, you take his children, you take his health, then Job would deny God and curse him. So he demanded that God would give him some power over Job, which God did. Yet Job prevails with his faith, though tenuous at times, intact. Job does not curse God, though as we heard in Job 3, he gets close, just as Peter does here. But the devil, you remember, had gone to God to sift Job. And in the same way, the devil prayed that God would hand Peter over. And so this is where you find there are competing and clashing prayers in this text. And children, is it any surprise which prayer wins at the end of the day? You know, the sa- Satan, he prays to have the child of God. But at the end of the day, as, and maybe as alarming as that is, as alarming as it was for you in the book of Job, and you find the same playbook of the devil here in Luke 22, is it really alarming if you're in Christ when you know that Christ is praying that your faith will not fail. See, the devil is God's devil, obviously, but also you have the prayers of the Son of God contending against the devil. Now, before we go any further then, you observe here God's total sovereignty. right? The devil, again, has to ask your own God for permission to afflict you. Isn't that a comfort? Is that not a relief? There is nothing... Nothing the devil can do that the God who loves you and has sent his son to die in your place will not do for your own good. He'll only let the devil do what is right for your own good. The devil cannot unilaterally move against you, brethren. His actions are limited by God. And he is always playing a losing game when it comes to the Christian. Because what the devil means for evil, God means for good. Because as we heard this morning... God cannot be frustrated. All of God's ultimate purposes are good, especially for the children of God. Even the afflictions of Job, and you'll see Peter soon, at the devil's hands were for their own good, ultimately. Now, what is Satan's petition? He wanted to sift Simon as wheat. Now, if you've ever watched threshing and sifting, you know this is no gentle process. To thresh wheat is to really beat on it violently 
intend to sift it is to shake it about, to dislodge the chaff. You know, you can imagine yourself as one of those grains being tossed about and being beaten and being uh, thrown and hurled about to separate the chaff. That's a violent process. It doesn't feel good, does it? And that's what the testing of our faith often is. Satan sifting. That's a violent process to dislodge the chaff. Now, what is Satan's design in this? He wanted to thrash Simon about to unmoor him from his faith in Jesus, thinking that Simon was going to be proven chaff. He wanted to trouble Simon. He wanted to disorient and disturb Peter's faith, to disturb his rest in Christ, so that he would deny Jesus and depart from him once and for all. This has happened before, as you well know. Jesus once asked, when so many of the multitudes left him, he asked the apostles, will ye also go away? As Satan was sifting. But then comes Peter asking, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the son of the living God. Now, this is Peter's great, you know, these are the great moments. You know, Peter often has great highs and great lows, as many of us do. And so here's, you know, Peter at his absolute best as the rock, isn't it? And he says, to whom else shall we go? Satan sifting, but the Lord's maintaining Peter's faith. And now you come to this great trial here, and you can almost imagine how the devil would want to disturb and dislodge Peter's faith. You know, that's the devil's purpose in the sifting, to shake you as wheat is shaken in the hopes you are proven chaff and will be carried away by the wind. But in actuality, the sifting process that God works through his devil is the reverse, which is that he actually removes the chaff from us. You know, when you see the sifting from the hand of the master, it's actually to remove the chaff. The devil desires to prove you chaff, child of God. But the master is removing the chaff from us. And that's what God does. He removes the chaff from the child of God, the useless bits, the sinful bits, the unbelieving bits from us. And it often takes a violent process because of the stubbornness of our flesh. He has to use such violence, uh, spiritual violence. And God's purpose in this then, he uses the best tool for the job, which is this being of violence, Satan, that through his great and terrible power, God may purify and God may release from us our sinful impurities. God uses the devil for these designs. So let's see Satan sifting here. You know, he brought three temptations to Simon later on as our Lord Jesus was carried away. In verses 54 through 60, we didn't read it. First, there's a maid, a young woman, who points Peter out and said, this man was also with him, speaking Christ, the devil sifting in that. What's Peter's response in that temptation? It really ought to break our hearts. Woman, I know him not. To whom else shall we go? Turns into woman, I know him not. This is the unbelief that still lingers in Peter. Such unbelief is not far from you and me, child of God. And it had to be exposed, didn't it? Had to be exposed. 
Then a second temptation. Another said, Thou art also of them. Peter's response, Man, I am not. So again, it wasn't a fluke. Peter says it again. A third temptation, an hour later, so he's even had time to reflect on his conduct. Another said, Of a truth, this fellow also was with him. Peter's response, Man, I know not what thou sayest. Now, it's even more emphatic in Matthew, which is really revealing. Peter, Matthew says, cursed and swore. Cursed and swore that he did not know Jesus. That's a terrible thing. Cursing that he did not know the man. What blasphemy Peter is is committing here. He had fallen prey to Satan's temptations, just as Job before him. You remember that Job had cursed his day when Satan's temptations became severe. So in all of this, what do we see? What do we discover? We know the end of the story. We know that Peter is eventually restored. But what is it that we are seeing as his faith is tested? That there is deep chaff in the man, deep dross that goes to the very heart of the man, much unbelief. There is much to sift away. And it was the devil's temptation of Peter that revealed it, that he isn't this great rock in himself. There is much impurity. There are many cracks in his faith. And for us too, Satan's sifting of ourselves will reveal the very same thing. That there are many areas of unbelief in us as our faith is assaulted in the sifting process. Now, before we move on, I think it would be good to ask two questions. First, why is Simon under the devil's crosshairs? Second, why did the devil desire to attack his faith? Now, the reason we are to ask such questions when we see the devil at work, whenever you see the devil at work, you're to ask such questions because the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 2.11 says, we are not ignorant of Satan's devices. How is it we're not ignorant of them? Because we see them plainly in the Bible and God teaches us what each device does and how it is we may stand. So in a way, children, for your encouragement, the devil has a very uh, effective but very well-worn playbook. He has nothing new. He has nothing new, really. Uh, He is predictable. The problem is, and he delights in this, we don't study it. But to study his playbook is to not be taken unaware, but to withstand him by faith. And second, I would also say, do not think some strange thing has happened to you when you are assaulted. Right? When you are assaulted by the devil, don't be surprised by it. Peter, other godly men, the apostle says that we are not ignorant of his schemes. And so when we are assaulted by the devil, we are tempted. Rather than faith diminishing, faith ought to be strengthened. The Lord has told me this will happen. And I am forewarned. So going back to the two questions. First, as to why Simon. Well, Simon was the most bold and outspoken of the apostles. You know, unlike the papists say, he's not the first pope, far from it. He was a fellow elder. Um, But he was in many uh, ways, in the early days, a spokesman for the apostles as a whole. You know, he always had a boldness about him, ever ready to go and charge forward for Christ's cause. He even strikes off the ear, sinfully so, of the high priest's servant. So Satan sees Peter as a strategic target. As Zechariah 13.7 says, Smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. Now, you think of this just 
If you were a strategist like the devil, and don't think too deeply on it, but maybe you could because that'll help you understand his devices. You know, if Peter abandoned Christ, what a blow that would be. Right? Satan thought, what a blow that would be to Christ's cause. If the one who said, to whom shall we go, goes away, what would happen to the faith of all the disciples? It would be unmoored. They would, he would think, all will go away with Peter, and that must have been the device. So in that, let us also never forget that ministers and elders are targets of the devil. And the reason for that is, and you've seen it, Every time a minister falls into grievous sins, how the faith of God's people are shaken. How could that man get up there and preach the word all the time and yet fall into this sin or that sin or the other? You know, people have literally walked away from Christ because of ministers doing that kind of thing. No new scheme goes back here, at least as you see. So you need to encourage ministers and elders and pray for them that they would stand grievous temptations, the fiery darts of the devil. And of course, you yourself are not immune, are you? No Christian is. You know, the enemy will seek to sift you all, all of you with true and living faith, especially those of you who are vocal about your faith, right? What a thing it would be to see the one who is vocal, always talking about how she or he trusts in the Lord, how he or she always relies on God. Then when the temptation comes, when the devil takes away one thing or another, as with Job, how he's waiting, how he's watching to see what you will do in case your faith being shaken will affect others. You who are very vocal about your faith will be the one who will come under assault. And this is why we will often see men and women of God who are very devoted to the Lord seem to suffer the most. While those, I was talking to an elder recently in another denomination and he was saying something like that. He's like, I work with all these nominal Christians and I look at me and I'm suffering all the time. My health is so poor. I feel so weak. I've got all these things, these afflictions, and they have none of that. And I I feel like, why am I tested like this? Well, here we find the answer that those who are closest to the Lord will have their faith tested and tried in so many ways. None of you are immune, but you must remember what Christ's purpose is in it. It's to remove the chaff. It's to remove the dross. It is to deepen your faith. It is to draw you closer to Christ. Something nominal Christians know nothing of. So that takes us to the second question. Why did Satan attack Simon's faith? Now, this is critical for you to understand as he seeks to attack your own faith. You know, faith unites us to Christ. This side of glory, it's your vital connection to the Redeemer and all his blessedness that we talked about this morning. And so the battle of faith is a battle to dislodge you from Jesus Christ himself. You know, when um, his faith diminishes, and let's understand this rightly as Reformed Christians, what did Peter say? He didn't say, oh, I deny the doctrine of justification by faith. He didn't say, I deny the doctrine of worship. No, instead he said, I know not the man. It's the object of his faith that he denies. And this is what Satan wants to do, is to dislodge you from Jesus Christ. Because it is by faith that we see Christ for who he is, and we abide in him by faith. Faith is that vital lifeline that unites us to the Redeemer. And, you know, to the true child of God, Satan can never 
truly sever that. That that connection is held by God. But he, at the very least, can seek to diminish your faith such that it's weakened and weakened and weakened. And even insofar as faith is that great instrument of your justification, what happens to a weak faith as Satan undermines your faith? It will diminish and reduce your assurance of salvation, won't it? As faith diminishes, your assurance of salvation diminishes as well. Put it this way, if it were possible for the devil to rip away faith from a believer, then he would rip you away from Jesus himself and make you a castaway. Now, as I've said, the Lord knows who are his and he will uphold you. None can remove you from his hand as he has promised. Faith will be kept by the power of God. But those who are hypocrites, when their temporary faith is tested, will walk away as Demas walked away when the devil sifts. Now, the other reason he assaults faith, even in the true believer, even if he has not yet learned, though, That's hard to understand why, but the devil isn't very smart. We'll talk about that in a moment. In a way, he's not very wise at all, but um, he assaults faith even in a true believer, even if he doesn't, even if he realizes he can't destroy your faith, because the, the grace of faith is the root of every other grace as well. You remember the other two primary graces are hope and love. Love is the chief of all graces, 1 Corinthians 13, 13, and now abideth faith, hope, charity, or love, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. What's the root of charity? Faith. Love for Christ and others diminishes when faith is weakened. When the trial of Peter's faith came, what did he say? I know not the man. Where did love go when faith was shaken? Love is gone. Love has diminished for the Savior I hope that you all see how awful it is to say you love Christ and to say, I know not the man. What a thing it is to say of thy beloved Jesus. This is one reason why then, right? At the end of John's gospel, three times, Jesus asked Peter, lovest thou me? Right? When his faith is restored, his faith is strengthened. Though Peter grieved the question, he said, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest I love thee. But faith is also the root of hope. And this is what we see in Job as Job's hope starts to diminish. Hopelessness comes to us when we have a weak faith. What do you lose, what do you lose um, hope in? God's promises, don't you? When your faith is diminished. You start to walk by sight. You don't walk by faith in the promises of God towards you and to me as well, Christian. You become anxious and the cares of this present world, they overwhelm you. Though God has said, Christ has said, that if you seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these things will be uh, cared for you. And he says you are not to care for anything. You are not to be anxious. And yet we forget these things as faith diminishes. And then we start, we start to be anxious and how distant the promises of God are to us. But also consider other evangelical graces that are diminished when faith diminishes. Obedience is certainly reduced when faith uh, diminishes. Uh, Faith is the root of our obedience. Repentance, it, it diminishes. We no longer repent of our sin. We're no longer convicted of it. Faith is the root of repentance. Good works wither. Where are your good works when your faith withers? Good works are the product of faith. Faith without works is dead after all. When faith withers, our souls wither. 
because it is by faith we feed on Christ through the means of grace as we are now. And on top of that, you need to understand that faith is defensive. It protects your soul from the devil's devices. You probably, maybe, have Ephesians 6, the armory of God memorized. Faith is the shield of the Christian's armory, isn't it? The shield that protects our minds and our hearts from what? The fiery darts of the devil. So you can see that faith shields us from the temptations of the devil. See, if the devil wants his temptations to have power, what must he do? He must crack open and split asunder Peter's shield of faith to get a hold of his soul, as he will do that same thing to you and to me, so that his temptations take greater root. So now I think you understand how all these things come together in our text and why the devil sought to assault Simon's faith. And you understand as well, it's not just Simon. But it's also you and me who will be assaulted in such ways. Now, for those of us in Christ, faith will not be torn from us completely. Praise God. You may fear that, but if you're truly in Christ, it won't be. We'll see that because the Savior will pray for us. But what will often diminish is what we call the habit of faith. The habit of faith, the exercise of faith can be greatly weakened and diminished. You know, the habitual life of faith you are called to live by, for the just shall live by faith. And all the effects of faith being shaken and diminished are absolutely dreadful. Dreadful. So be aware, child of God, of the devil's malignancy. Your faith is a target and you are called to be vigilant, to grow your faith, to strengthen your faith. And when faith is assaulted to say, no, I will not walk by sight. I will walk by faith in the promises of God. The, the devil's going to put things before you. You know, Peter, you think of him fearing for his life or whatever it is that's going through the man's heart and mind when he denies Jesus Christ. He should have known that Christ will be victorious from all the things he had said and preached to him. And he should have been strong in faith. Yes, I know the man. He is the only Savior of men. He is the Son of God. Outside of Him, no man is blessed. If He had His faith strong, He would have said such things. But one of the things that is commendable about Peter is that God teaches him lessons and Peter learns the lesson. You know, it's astonishing to see the man that God made Peter through his trials and his stumbling. It is Peter who the devil sought to sift that wrote 1 Peter 5.8 under inspiration. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. We would be fools to forget his warning. A warning that came from personal experience, isn't it? Now you put these things together and you see, yes, Peter understood that very well. So don't think that the fiery trial of your faith is a strange thing. You will be tried. You will be tested, child of God. You are to be sober and you are to be vigilant. Now, you may be alarmed by all these things. And this is something, again, that nominal Christians don't face. But only those who seek to follow the Lord, as Peter did, will face. And so as alarming as this is, praise God, you're not left to stand on your own. And so we come to our second heading, which is Christ's petition. So the devil demanded 
that he might sift Peter, a frightening prospect. And let us all think on this. Who here can stand the devil in their own strength? None of us. Not a single one of us. So praise God that when the devil asked for Peter, somebody else was right there. Somebody else stood by. Jesus Christ, Son of God, interceding for Peter and went to God on Peter's behalf. The word, but I have prayed for thee that thy faith faileth not. Peter, you know, was totally oblivious. Peter was totally oblivious as Job was totally oblivious that the Son of God was interceding for him. That he had a mighty advocate far greater than the devil to pray for him. Even when he was not praying, even when he was clueless about the danger he was in, Christ was not clueless about the danger he was in. And Christ prayed for his faith. And Jesus was interceding for him when Peter didn't know the first thing about what was happening uh, in the council of God. And that's incredible. You know, perhaps no words can cheer the child of God better than Jesus Christ saying, I have prayed for thee. I have prayed for thee. What a thing it is, child of God, to know that. That Jesus Christ is saying now to this assembly, to all of you at faith, I have prayed for thee. You know, we think of ourselves having to pray to God, and we have to. But what a thing it is that the Son of God in his mediatorial work, the God-man, is praying for you. This ought to encourage us. You know, if the devil is the accuser of the brethren, well, the Christian has a greater advocate at every time, every moment. Personally praying for each one of you who believe. And not only are you prayed for, you're not prayed for mechanically. You're not prayed for abstractly. He knows exactly what you need prayer for. And he prays for you. And he prays for you because your, your name is upon his heart. Your name is graven upon the palms of his hand. And he knows precisely and entirely what to pray for you. He takes you into the Holy of Holies, to the throne of grace, and prays for your needs. He rebukes Satan for you, as you would read in Zechariah 3. When Satan accuses, Jesus says what? The Lord rebuke thee. The Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem, the Lord that hath chosen Peter, the Lord that hath chosen each of the elect, rebuke thee. It's a remarkable thing. Is there any encouragement for you, beloved, that Jesus Christ prays for you? You know, his prayers are not like our prayers. Are they? They're perfect. But also... God answers every prayer that Jesus offers up. Right? When the mediator between God and man, who is very God and very man, prays for you, John eleven forty one ought to cheer you. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me, and I knew that thou hearest me always. Christ's prayers are always heard. Christ's prayers are always answered. Has Christ ever prayed anything that has not been answered? If Christ is praying for you, how can you fear anything at all in this world? 
if Christ is praying for you? If Christ is praying for you, how can you fear that you will ever be lost when he is praying that thy faith faileth not? If Christ is praying for you, how can you be anxious over anything? Oh, Christian, when your faith falters, Jesus is saying to you, you who listens, behold, I have prayed for thee that thy faith faileth not. Surely, why is this text given to you? Is it just some historical narrative for you? Or is it given to every Christian that they may understand the truth? Surely Christ wants you, believer, to know it in the word of God as he warned Peter. Do you know this? Do you embrace it? Will you be cheered by it? Can you understand that you are personally laid up before God by the Son of God? That He has said, even of the sparrow, not one of them is forgotten before God and that you are worth many sparrows. And why do you think that your great high priest has forgotten you in the heavens? Our sin is we forget him. He will never sin in forgetting us. So Satan demands Peter from God, but Christ prays for Peter's faith to prevail. So children... Who do you think wins the contest? Is there even a doubt? None whatsoever. No contest. And so you have to remember that as well. And Christ never ceases. He is ever active. You and I have to sleep. You think about Peter again, sometimes sinfully slow, as Peter did at Gethsemane. But who prays for you when you are sleeping on your bed? Who prayed for Peter when he slumbered? Behold, he that keepeth Israel, neither shall neither slumber nor sleep. That's uh, Psalm 121. So what a thought that is, that you are ever prayed for. When you can't pray, you know, even if you were on the deathbed, you're near coma, even if uh, for whatever reason your mental faculties are gone, if you are his, he's praying for you. And that has to cheer the Christian because it's not your strength that will uphold you, it is his, because our strength is so feeble and faint. These words of Christ, I have prayed for thee, ought to echo in your soul at every point in every day. And also I'll come to the point that I made early on. He said, I am praying that thy faith will not fail. But he never said, I have prayed that thy faith will not be tested. That's a vital distinction. Your faith will be tested. Your faith will be tested. And you must know that. It's not a strange thing that happens to you when your faith in the Lord is tested. When things seem so bleak, right? The Lord will bring providences. He'll give you great, uh, he will use the devil to bring great temptations right before you. Just as we read in Matthew 4 of our own Lord, right? He will bring temptations before you. He will test your faith. And you must know that. This is not a strange thing that has occurred to you, child of God. Your faith will be tested, but he prays that thy faith faileth not. That in the testing you will not fail. So when the trial of your faith comes, will you ask, where is God in all of this? Where is Christ in all of this? As though you have been abandoned by the Lord. No. Or will you say instead, I see, I see a trial of my faith. A devil has asked to sift me, and God has given him some leash to do it. But even so, I will take up this text, 
and by faith cast my eyes into the heavens, the unseen heavens, and I will hear from the word of God that Jesus Christ has said, I have prayed for thee, that thy faith faileth not. And I will, by God's grace, have absolutely no doubt in my soul that because the Son of God is ever heard, I will come through this trial of faith, not on my own merit, not on my own strength, but on his. And that because he is praying, there is not a single solitary chance my faith will fail, even if it is stretched. So I say, let the trial come and let God answer his own son's prayer. You know, we are very often moved by the father who prayed when he clutched his stricken son. Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. You and I must pray that to strengthen our faith, undoubtedly. But when we do, you remember that our prayer is just in alignment with Christ's own prayer, isn't it? Why does that man's faith ultimately not fail? It's because Christ has interceded for him. You know, we ought to pray regularly uh, for an increase of our faith. The disciples prayed for it, Luke 17, Lord, increase our faith. Now, when you know that the Lord above is praying the same very thing, it ought to drive us to do so ourselves because it means that our prayers are aligned with his and he is always answered of God. And so that prayer is always answered of God. So pray like that before the trial of faith comes. Well, let's conclude with our final heading, which is God's purpose. So what is the purpose the Lord has given in this trial or any trial of faith? Well, as you have already heard, for the strengthening of our faith and for the showing of our unbelief or faith's defects. You know, we hate to hear it, but our faith is never what it ought to be. Really isn't. You know, consider Peter's boast. Even after Jesus said he had prayed for him, he said unto him, Lord, I am ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. You know, how strong we appear in faith, don't we, before the trial comes? And you see, this is what, the, what is being illustrated by Peter. We seem like we can stand the armies of the devil. The world can come against us and we will stand strong in the faith. We're like Peter here. We're ready to boast. I am ready, Lord, to die for you. Peter said, I can do it. I will do it. Notice this. Even after Jesus said, I am praying for thee. I want you to think about that for a moment. It's almost as though Peter brushes off the Son of God's prayer. Right? I won't do it. I won't do it. It's almost like you don't need to pray for me. Right? I'm good. Isn't that what is often in our hearts? The Lord will humble us as he humbled Peter until we weep bitterly like Peter did that we were ever so foolish to think that we can stand like that. You know... As we remember Peter, Peter later recognized what God was doing in his own trial of faith. 1 Peter 1, 5 through 9. He remembers how he was kept, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. Why? that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen ye love, in whom though now ye see him not, yet believing 
ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Beloved, this is what Peter came to realize through his own trial of faith, that your faith is tested and purified like a precious metal, because it is meant to be to you more precious than the most precious thing on the earth, your faith, as it connects you to Jesus Christ. And through trials of faith, you will see Jesus more clearly. Undoubtedly, Peter saw Christ more clearly after this trial than he did before. And that is what happened in a very interesting way, isn't it? Peter had seen Jesus for three years with his eyeballs, but he hadn't really seen him clearly. This is why Peter says to us, whom having not seen ye love, right? He loved Jesus more when his faith increased, more than when he saw him with his own eyeballs. And that's the beauty of faith, that faith connects us to the Redeemer. Faith causes us to see Him clearly. And so when there are defects in our faith, it's almost like we have spiritual cataracts. And so the trial of faith comes, that we may greater see Him whom we have not seen with our eyes. We may love Him all the more. And that we may rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. By faith and the trial of it, you see a Jesus you have never seen. And is that not precious? Does that not make faith precious to us? That you can love one you have not seen. And so the purification of your faith and the trial of it will cause you to see Christ more. It'll cause these graces to flourish when graces had withered in you. What the devil means for evil, Christ means for good, and he enlivens our faith. Well, Peter's faith was indeed proven genuine. Right, though he seemed to utterly fail the test, and he speaks about the genuineness of our faith in 1 Peter 1. And we must take heart in that, because we are often Christians who fail our Lord. Right, Failing in itself does not prove that our faith is not genuine. And that's something that we learn from Peter. How was it that Peter's faith was proven genuine after all? Because when Jesus looked at him after his final denial... He was pierced in his heart when he remembered the word of God. And then he wept bitterly and repented. Only faith would do that. And this is an answer to Christ's own prayer, isn't it? Repentance. If your faith is upheld by Christ, he will work repentance in you. You see, repentance is the grace of God. It's how you know that Christ prayed for Peter and not for Judas. And it's how you know child of God today, for us certain that Jesus is praying for you. Every mark of repentance, every action of repentance, you say, oh, it was the Son of God praying that my faith faileth not. Every time I return to the Lord after unbelief, it was the Son of God, praise God, that upheld my faith. As Peter himself wrote, you are only kept by the power of God through faith in your trials. So Satan desired to sift and God desired to sanctify. Through Satan's sifting, God enlivened his faith. But Christ also gave Peter a command. When thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Now the word converted does not indicate a conversion from death to life. It means when you have returned. When you have returned to me, Peter. When you have returned to me, Simon. 
When you repent, when you are turned from your unbelief, when you come to your senses as the prodigal came to his senses, then strengthen thy brethren. Now, first of all, now this is really something we overlook. In Christ, there is absolutely no doubt that his prayer is going to be answered. Does Christ say, if you are converted? Or does he say, when you are converted? He says, when thou art converted. This is an assurance that when the Lord says, I have prayed for thee, that thy faith faileth not, your faith will not fail. When thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. You know, what a thing that is. And and maybe maybe the Lord brought that word to him as well later on. Um, He wasn't hearing very well at this time, but the Lord often lodges his word in our hearts so that the spirit will light it on fire at the time that is needed. And maybe that's what came to, the, uh, to Peter later. But this is a text for you backsliders today. Have you walked away from the Lord for a time? He is calling you. Be converted. Return to me. And as in Malachi, I will return unto thee. Return to me and I will return to thee. Malachi 3.7. How can you not turn back to him if you have turned away from him? If you are truly his, he is praying in the heavens that thy faith faileth not. How can you turn away from one who prays for you? You must return to him as Peter returned to him. From every sin, every waywardness, turn back to the Lord. Return to him, O prodigal. Why would you turn your back on one who cares and loves you so much? Now, if you are a hypocrite, and this is the fear, Satan's sifting will cast you off like Demas and Judas. Are you... Demas an apostate, are you, um, or are you Peter, a backslider, who returns to Christ? You know, don't think you have time left to return. Return now. Determined to be a Peter who returns and not a Demas who has gone forever, loving this present world. Be converted. Who else will you entrust your soul to? Be not faithless, but believing. Now, when you are tried and you turn back to the Lord, when the trial of your faith has passed, and maybe some of you here today have come from a trial of faith, what duty does the Lord lay upon you? Strengthen thy brethren. He gives you something to do. You know, after Peter himself was strengthened through the trial of faith, the blessing of Peter's trial was meant to multiply. You know, through the prayer of Jesus Christ, Christ would not only strengthen Peter, but Peter would strengthen the whole college of apostles and the early church as a whole. And isn't that beautiful? God's ways, how inscrutable and profound are they? Right? He uses the devil's sifting to not only strengthen Peter's faith, to give him a greater sight of Christ, but by that testing, he will now go and he will strengthen all the apostles and the early church. And so again, the devil is just kicking at the goads, isn't he? At the pricks. He can't really do anything that God doesn't turn to greater blessing. But if the Lord has brought you through a trial of faith, here is your duty, strengthen thy brethren. Encourage them, show them what the Lord has done, show them what the Lord has taught. That they ought to look, you know, in the trial of their own faith, they ought to look at the Lord of heaven, who is praying now for them from the heavens. That faith in Jesus Christ always, always gets the victory. You strengthen them. You tell them, persevere and stay with the Lord. 
to say as we would read in Ephesians 6, My brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might, that they are to take up the whole armory of God and to take up the shield of faith to deflect the devil's darts and to know that as Christ strengthens our faith, we will truly stand to the trial and temptation. Tell your brethren, though he slay you, trust in him still. And, you know, they will not trust those who have not gone through such a trial of faith. And that's why the Lord will use you who have gone through trials of faith. It's very easy for somebody who has never been tested to say, oh, just believe in the Lord and the power of his might and the Lord is praying for you. But you who have had those dark and deep trials of faith, what a thing it is to witness. What a thing it is to witness that and to then speak experientially of what the Lord has done. Well, brethren, all that said, time being up, our Lord Jesus prays for our faith. We're not forgotten before God because the Son of God will never forget the ones he has died for. There is a great ministry in the heavens for you and me too, child of God. If you're at your wit's end, if you're at your strength's end, the Lord might say, good. Let the power of God, let the intercession of Christ carry you. If you've fallen into despair and you've turned away from the Lord as Peter has, child of God, Jesus Christ is calling you back. He says to you, I am praying for you and don't you dare walk from here like Peter saying, no need, no need. Say instead, bless the Lord, O my soul. Come back to him, put away your sin. Now, if you're in fear over some peril, over some danger, over some difficulty, over some trial, well, resolve today as you're in the furnace of affliction to learn of the intercessory work of Jesus Christ. Go read John 17. Go read great commentaries. Um, I think Anthony Burgess preached 145 sermons on John 17. And so go learn of the intercessory work of Christ. Remember the words of McShane. I ought to study Christ as an intercessor. He prayed most for Peter, who was to be most tempted. I am on his breastplate. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million of enemies. Yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. McShane did not write that as wishful thinking. He could pick up his Bible as you should, see a text like this, and say this is the truth of God's word. Know that truth and have a holy boldness to live for the Lord, knowing that he will gain the victory of your faith. Amen. May God bless his word to us. Let us arise for prayer if able. O Lord God of heaven, increase our faith. Lord, we say we believe, help thou our unbelief. If there are any here who have faltered in faith and have walked from the Lord for a time, Lord, make it known to them, shoot into their hearts. I have prayed for thee that thy faith faileth not, and may they turn back to the Lord in view of that. Lord, Help us to grow strong in faith and how thankful we are to know that when we pray for our faith, we are merely in lockstep with our Savior. Help us bless the Lord who ever takes, um, ever has his eye upon us, never takes his eye off of us and knows precisely what he must pray for us that we would endure to the end. How thankful we are to know that we are not left to ourselves, 
but Christ has a care for us. Bless these dear people that their faith may grow strong in those who do not have it. May this be the day in which they believe in such a great and merciful Savior. And may God be blessed and glorified for the truth of the word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.